This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Scamrod. We love these email assistants, and I think this is going to be one of the most promising applications of bots, bots that sort of interject themselves into your overloaded email inbox and make things better for you by applying a lot of AI to uh, reply to email that you'd rather not handle yourself. One of the most promising companies doing this is Clara Labs, based in San Francisco. On this program, we have two folks from Clara with us to talk about slightly different aspects of what they're doing. Our first guest is Jason Laska, who's the machine learning person in R&D at Clara. Jason, welcome. Hi, thanks. It was interesting. So Jason and I connected recently over Twitter, and I believe it was there was a Microsoft paper on how they're handling, uh, I think it's calendar help and some mm -hmm. of the cooperative, you know, human aspects of scheduling um, uh, with calendar help. And my familiarity with Clara started in the same way as a scheduling assistant. To kick things off, Jason, can you tell us a little bit about Clara and the machine learning at Clara? Sure. So the basic product is that, say you need to schedule a meeting and you're already having an email discussion with the person you want to schedule it with, uh, you just copy Clara or whatever you want to name the assistant on an email and say, hey, please set this up for me. And Clara will go back and forth, play email tags, suggest some times, uh, and ultimately get it on your calendar. Um, and you can kind of just set it and forget it and then just pick up your calendar to figure out where you need to go next. Uh, one of the key things that makes this really work is integrating customers' preferences and uh, kind of habits um, into our platform so that when we suggest times for, say, a coffee meeting, we suggest them at the actual time that you care to have coffee. So our system handles interactions with both uh, customers and third-party participants uh, using natural language uh, through their email. And the way we do this is a combination of machine learning and um, human processing. Uh, it's a human in a loop type system. When an email comes into our system, we process it uh, with our NLP service. Um, we try to extract all of the parameters that we think are relevant to scheduling. This is things like the availability of a participant, um, any specific locations or other entities that are relevant to scheduling. And then we try to predict what, to, what actions to take based on those parameters. Both the uh, parameters that we've predicted, as well as the final actions that we think we should take, may be shown to a person. And you know, this may depend on our confidence of our predictions. Uh, it may also depend on whether we picked up something in the message that we just don't understand hmm. and we need additional help with. And so the combination of modeling this problem out in software, which allows us to store and encode all of your preferences and act on them the way a machine would, but then showing it to people to kind of help cor correct and modify our predictions is what enables the kind of uh, high quality service that you end up feeling as a user. It also provides a kind of feedback loop to the machine learning algorithms because effectively every modified or corrected prediction is another label into our system. In fact, these are the best labels for us to get because they're the things we couldn't do, do well on previously. What's your learning rate like these days? I mean, what percentage of messages are shown to a human at this point, And how does that compare to, say, six months or, or a year ago? Um, so without going into the specifics of uh, which percentage of messages is shown to a human, I can say that we do consider it uh, to be like a spectrum of automation. So on one end of the spectrum, there are some messages that just 
are totally acted on by our system. On the other end, there are some things we've never seen before that almost probably need to go to support, and so mm -hmm. they're totally manual. Uh, and in between, there's a lot of kind of auto-filling or, or pre-filling the parameters that get tuned and fixed, and then that goes into kind of our a deterministic uh, automator that then says, okay, here's what I'm going to do next based on those parameters. Hmm. Um, and at both steps of the way, we may have people. So we may have people kind of uh, editing parameters. We may have people just looking at the output and saying, yeah, all these emails are great. Let's, mm -hmm. let's uh, send those out. And actually, one of the cool things that doesn't usually happen in an annotation system, a traditional ML annotation system, is the annotators actually understand the application. Um, so they... Hmm. They know what it means to be good at scheduling. They understand uh, the context of the variables, um, mm. which is quite different than, say, a Mechanical Turk type system. Yeah, th this was, I think, the really fascinating part of our conversation. So I went in talking to Jason initially, very skeptical. I've tried a lot of these schedulers. I would say of the schedulers I've tried, I've tried them all, including human, pure human virtual scheduling. Clara was interesting because it did feel very speedy. And John, you and I have been in some um, scheduling of even podcast sessions <laughs> where there are three bots and three humans trying to coordinate and schedule. And I would say Clara um, stood out to me in that it was often, you know, this is an anic data, very small data set sample, right. but um, it did feel very fast. Uh, and it, and it, you could tell that it was doing, you know, some things in an automated way. But the, the thing that I thought was refreshing about your take on this, uh, Jason, is that Instead of taking a Wizard of Oz approach where you're very cagey about, oh, yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's amazing AI, trust us, it's amazing AI, and then you actually have contractors doing everything, you're consciously trying to, basically, it's like it becomes a margin business of like very carefully tracking, like, yes, there will be humans who are augmented in this cooperative intelligence type of application. And it becomes how efficiently and how high leverage can you do, can you make that? Is that correct? Absolutely. And I mean, consider other areas that have been automated. Um, we know a lot of factories have been automated. There are still people in those factories, right? Mm -hmm. There are people uh, who may run the factory. There are also a lot of people who kind of interface with the machines where the machines still aren't capable of doing that kind of work. Um, and so if you think of it as a kind of a progressive automation over time, where you automate, say, 80% of messages because they fall into the kind of the center of, of your Gaussian. Um, mm -hmm. And then the tails, just you just kind of pick away at them over time. Um, you can still make a very cost-effective, very high-quality service. I would also argue that you want to build new things. And when you build new features, you need new data. And so maybe people aren't going away because they're there to help you build your new features or build mm -hmm. your new applications. Yeah, so it's, the person is, in, in one school of thought, people are a necessary evil who should be hidden. And in another way of looking at it, they're now like an operator or a conductor, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, the way I think about it is people are still there to do some of the most challenging aspects of this work. And that's exactly what you want to use people for, right? We're very, we have very good cognitive abilities. But when it comes to things like picking times that are valid for a, a set of constraints, computers are very good at that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's like trying to take the best to leverage people in the, for the things that they are best at and leverage machines for the things that they're best at. 
Do you see any evidence that uh, your users are changing their mode of interactions when they're conscious that they're speaking with an AI bot? You know, adopting new forms of writing email when they're conscious that they're speaking to a computer? Uh, yeah, you find that, uh, you know, most people going into this don't know that they're talking to a computer. Um, so they tend to speak pretty naturally. But you do find that when people respond to us saying that the times we suggested weren't good, right? Um, they might like list out a bunch of times um, that are better. And one of the interesting aspects of that is that that might be more clear for a person um, because the times stand out visually, kind of spatially. Mm -hmm. But like all of the context, all of the language around the times that tells us whether they are good or bad for the person is now kind of separated. It makes it a slightly more challenging huh. NLP problem, which is kind of funny. So. Interesting. So are, are you using, could you, could you tell us a little bit about the, the group of deep learning uh, technologies that you're using to address the, the problem? This is obviously much more sophisticated than just a text parser that's looking for times and how close they are to the words good and bad. Right. So, I mean, it's it's kind of layers of processing, right? So at some point, we do need to detect these times, but we need to know more about them. So we need to know, are you available at a time? Are you, un are you unavailable? Uh, or maybe you're just mentioning a time that's totally irrelevant to our application, such mm -hmm. as uh, like, see you next week. Mm -hmm. um, so for that, we might classify or tag the time with, you know, one of three or four classes. And for that, you can use any variety of methods. So you can use kind of a traditional TF-IDF vectorizer with a, any kind of classifier, like an SVM or random forest. You might use a conditional random field, which is really good at tagging things in sequence. You could also use RNNs or any of the kind of more modern techniques, given enough data. Some of our bigger challenges are actually in interpreting some of this data. So it's one thing to detect and then classify that you have a date time. It's another thing to actually try to translate that into something that's usable by our system. And I think Peter alluded to this when we met last time, but there's a lot of work on kind of detecting simple expressions of date times in really standard text corpuses, but there's not so much for these kinds of colloquial, or at least not so much publicly available technology for these kind of colloquial things. And mm. then there's an aspect of how do we integrate the feedback that we're getting from, um, from our uh, humans in the system into making these things better. So in the classification case, it's pretty straightforward because they're effectively telling us, you know, is somebody available or unavailable at a time? And we can figure out, you know, what label that would correspond to. But in the case of parsing out exactly what that time meant, there's a variety of approaches you could take. You could try to tag every part or element of that time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a pretty laborious process. And that's the kind of thing you might do. You might bootstrap with a Mechanical Turk. Right. Um, but there are more advanced methods where you can just take the final timestamps that you've resolved and actually learn better ways of parsing a detected date time um, so, so that you can get better at doing this in the future. So those are the kinds of problems that we we focus on along those lines like one of the challenges so john mentioned deep learning so when when push comes to shove one of the challenges that people hit with deep learning is that you do need a good amount of data for a lot of these techniques and so for the pe listeners out there in the bot world who are actually developing or building bots i think one of the things that they encounter so either they're using some off-the-shelf system uh, or service or API and trying to tune it with incoming data, or they're, they're, a lot of them are rolling their own or attempting to roll their own. But in that world, 
you you have very limited data, especially when you're starting out, and most of it is unlabeled, right? So for the particular case of of Clara, uh, if I if you have a bunch of incoming data where somebody says, "Hey, uh, you want to grab coffee next Monday?" How do you actually nail down like a a what is a truth label, and how do you operate with these techniques with with limited truth? you know, truth data. So we've invested a lot in the human operation of the platform. So this is not just uh, like, you know, an afterthought that we we built in order to get some labeled data. Um, and so a big part of that is not only how do you distribute tasks in such a way that you can get good response times, but another big part of it is how do you track human performance? I mean, uh, how do you how do you measure the accuracy of your labels when you do it on Mechanical Turk? Uh, so some techniques people use in Mechanical Turk might be things like a, a gold standard set where they have to label a set of known elements uh, or known examples first and get a certain score. Uh, another thing people might do is have multiple annotators annotate the same example uh, and then either you know take the mode or something like that and, and see who deviates from that. There's actually, I know some of some EM algorithms where you can try to both estimate the the true underlying labels, as well as each annotator's score and biases on what kinds of things they're good and bad at. There's all kinds of tricks. Um, so we've invested in a platform like that where we actually um, can show people the context of what's happened previously on a message thread. An, a new person may see this thread later on, like when, say, when you respond the next day, and they can mark mistakes against the previous annotator. And so this is a low cost way of effectively getting multiple annotations in some sense. It's not the only way and perhaps it's, it's always uh, going to evolve for us, but it enables us to, there's kind of a whole operational aspect of incentivizing our workers to both be fast and accurate. And you can imagine that because we mark mistakes in our system, it can be used as an, as an incentive for workers to be more accurate and then if workers are more accurate, the annotations that they give us in our platform are going to be uh, higher fidelity for the system. So we don't really have a ground truth for many of these things, but we have incentives for making people more accurate hmm. at doing this work. And then that directly translates to more accurate labels, which then should Im uh, hopefully improve the quality of our learning predictions. So when you set out at the at the beginning to uh, to develop this, was there a really cool like quirky corpus that you were able to to lean on? Did you use like scripts from you know '90s sitcoms where people were like, "See you later"? And I actually, I mean, when we started, uh, and you can talk more to Mike Michael about this, but um, the we actually started more on the manual side and kind of been kind of creeping in automation over time and. So we had a large data set of unlabeled data. And so, you know, the first thing you do is just get in the weeds and figure out what's there. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of classic language data mining techniques, just clustering the data, um, mm. performing LDA, like doing all kinds of things to just kind of figure out like, what is the important stuff here? What are the common trends? What are my like 80% of intents that people say. And the first few data sets we bootstrapped from, I made by hand. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine doing it any other way, uh, not because you can't uh, farm this out to people, but you need to figure out what problem to, what questions to ask people, right? Like, what are your intents that you're having your Turkers label? Um, mm -hmm. What most yeah. surprised you? Like, what are out of the box techniques 
they 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 seem to misfire a lot for date parsing mm -hmm. like you, you just have numbers mm -hmm. other parts of speech mm -hmm. that like might look like a date but are actually not a date mm -hmm. um do you, i imagine you had to scrub a lot of that out over time right yeah i mean the date uh, the actually the date parsing uh aspect of our stuff is is one of the things we've invested most in a uh, custom solution for because there's just not a lot of really good stuff out there but yeah, it's a combination of both classifying what we've detected, like, you know, you can detect it in a deterministic way and then classify it based on text that's surrounding the word or the token. And then, yeah, like just slowly chipping away at every single example of a date time that we've seen. What's cool is that we can have people tell us what our date times in the system and kind of collect them and, and build better detectors for them. Similar, there was a Google paper on this substrate of a translation layer where it would learn the interlingua uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that, uh, uh, you know, the model that learns to translate between languages. Right. Is there a similar thing for dates? Because people talk about, they use different lingo when they schedule and some people will say an explicit date. Some people will say, you know, Monday at four, like, do you have like, do you explode out and have all those variations under the hood? Uh, yeah, we have a whole lot of variations. And then what's cool about date times, perhaps unlike uh, language to language translation, is that you can actually evaluate a date time. You have to give it a reference time or some other context usually, because if somebody says Friday, which Friday do they mean? But because you can evaluate it to, uh, you can kind of resolve it to an actual timestamp or recurrence or something of this kind, you can use that to inform your parser, which, you know, like say that you have a parser that spits out K candidates, simply determining which of those K candidates are valid date times at all based on your language model is... Um, pretty powerful. And you can imagine using labeled data to do this. There's a few papers out of Stanford a couple of years back where they actually do this just, I think they do it just for dates, um, but it's it's pretty neat. They learn how to actually parse each part of a date um, just given final timestamps and reference times. Jason, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. We'll stay on and talk with Michael, the co-founder of Clara Labs in just a second. Uh, Jason, if listeners want to find you on the internet, where do they look? You can find look me up on LinkedIn or just Google my name. Um, I'm around. Cool. Jason Laska, thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. So our next guest is Michael Achillian. He's the co-founder and CTO of Clara Labs. Welcome, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we'd love to chat a little bit about sort of the reality of developing an AI-driven product. Uh, when When you set out to create the Clara service, did you think that, you know, someday you would be able to just have a giant dictionary that contains every kind of scheduling intent that someone might have? And once you just codify it, it'll be there and it'll be stable? Or, or did you see this from the very beginning as a giant deep learning challenge? Yeah, I would, I would say actually at the very beginning, our conception was even less advanced than, than your idea of the dictionary. Um, when, when we first started, we we really weren't focused on how do we build this at the beginning. We were much more focused on what product actually solves a daily constant um, user and customer need. Mm -hmm. um, and I think and I think, you know, at, at the time when we started, uh, my co-founder and I, we were probably 22, 23 years old and um, probably are the opposite of the, the founding teams of most um, artificial intelligence uh, esque companies, you know, you, you sort of you typically imagine um, sort of like a 
group of Stanford or MIT PhDs who've been like mm -hmm. in a lab for 10 years and they've <laughs> thought of this like amazing uh, assistant concept and they have these complex kind of models and layers and components. And we were, we were actually the complete opposite of that in that we sort of both had uh, had experiences in the kind of early in the profession, in our professional careers, um, doing actually, you know, my background was in electrical engineering and computer science and her background in psychology and neuroscience. And we had early experiences in our careers sort of interacting with the minutiae and day-to-day -day of what it looks like to be a kind of business professional. So sure. I'd actually worked as um, a venture associate at a, at a venture capital firm. And Marin had um, tried starting another company where she was mostly trying to sell that product Kind of constantly getting on calls and, and what have you and so our our, our really our, our kind of insight was <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous the amount of right. um coordination and tedium around kind of managing any high volume of relationships and our 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 approach to how we built it was it wasn't you know how do we go build this highly automated futuristic artificially intelligent system it was how do we scale something that solves this problem for our customers? And, mm -hmm. and when we first started, the, fir the very first version of Clara was literally us. The kind of difference of opinion we had at the very beginning of the company was, you know, my co-founder was like, you know, great, we've got this idea for Clara. I'm going to go get 25 paying customers. And I was like, whoa, what? Like, we got to build a product first and, you know, like actually make this work. And she ended up winning that argument, which I think in retrospect was good. <laughs> And, and that kind of really set the foundation for kind of how we approach the problem, thinking about how do you build a system that iteratively improves its ability to automatically handle these requests, as opposed to trying to bridge the gap from where we think we are today in kind of the story of technology and where we expect it to be, you know, 30, 40 years in the future. Um, it's, it's not a binary event. And we structured our um, company and products along that same line of thinking. Right, right. At what point did you begin to kind of grasp the uh, the magnitude of the AI challenge? Is it something <laughs> oh, that is it something that uh, was clear from the beginning? Yeah, pretty early on. You know, I I think somewhere in the I don't know th thousandth or ten thousandth meeting that I manually scheduled for one of our customers at the at the very beginning, I uh, you know sort of grasped like, wow, you know, there's really like. 5,000 different ways of saying like early next week at you know, <laughs> 3 p.m. Um, and, you know, there, there's there's a hundred different ways people have, you know, excuses or negotiating tactics around how what constraints they have that week, like they have to pick up their child or they have to go to a funeral, huh. and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, with varying levels of social social uh, courtesy there. Right. Um, and, and I think that's one of the realities of scheduling as a kind of problem, which is that each person involved in the conversation has thousands of things going on in their life. Their schedule is constantly changing and it's fundamentally a negotiation. And, you know, the number of different things you therefore may need to express is very, very large. And it therefore language becomes a very suitable interface to kind of capture that amount of expression, which also makes it a hard problem. Right, right. right. We've talked about this problem space. We, in general, we talk about bots and AI on, on this podcast. Um, and when we talk about bots, we've talked about a few um, players in this space. And um, a lot of, it's interesting. So if you were in venture capital, um, you're in, you were in that bucket of people who can be challenging to schedule because there, there are these interesting power dynamics, right? So 
Um, if you are in a sales role or if you are in, an, uh, you know, trying to meet with an investor, flipping it around the other way, it's very often a very human scheduling problem because you want to make sure that the person feels comfortable. You don't want it to seem robotic. Um, so some of the pushback that the scheduling bots have gotten is that the people who are busiest and who for who these meetings are very important also have very low, uh, their fault tolerance doesn't permit mistakes or awkwardness, right? Like if you tried to, if a bot tried to schedule a meeting that was going to, you know, ask the VC to meet you at a coffee shop, you know, very close by to yourself when they're, you know, they have a different power dynamic, that could be a problem. So how, how do you think about resolving those deep, like human power dynamic issues in scheduling? I, I kind of have, as you were saying the question, I, I sort of thought of three different ways I want to talk about it. The very first is that Using this word scheduling, you know, it, it's 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 a word that's talking about a ginormous number of business situations, right? It's mm -hmm. in that sense, it's like transportation, right? Some, <laughs> sometimes you're trying to walk across the street, you know, and sometimes you're trying to um, go from, you know, California to China, right? And mm -hmm. and you need like vastly different, you use vastly different tools to get from A to B. Of course, the promise, the dream is, you know, you think about where you want to get and you magically show up there. Like that's the interface that we all want. And I think the same, the same is ultimately true of scheduling and that the, the interface we all want and sort of really hope to have is this kind of, you know, hey, I want X to happen. And you know, the rest is taken care of, you know, if it's if there's eight people in the meeting, there's a slightly different permutation of maybe what that interface does to get it done versus if there's two. Um, and, and you can't treat all these situations the same, which I think, you know, so that's kind of the first point, which is that you're right, there are vastly different scheduling situations with different social dynamics. And I think the the second, so the second part of my answer is that I think it becomes important to think about what types of customers you're trying to go after and, and sort of what range of these situations they actually map to in terms of the the sort of the state space and you know the 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 reality is someone who you know kind of you know you have the example of like a venture capitalist or like the ceo of apple or you know what have you they're they're in a position where you know they have a solution to this problem they've ha they've used the same solution for a long time they can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars investing in their own productivity and something like clara is you know the, the opportunity to help those people is interesting uh but you know not where you can sort of have the biggest impact. The, the real impact is in the the millions of people who are not in those significantly high power positions, but who could justify purchasing a piece of software for you know a hundred bucks a month on their company corporate credit card, um, and really focusing on the situations that those people interact with. Mm -hmm. Startup founders who interact with uh, uh, you know VCs is a very small portion mm -hmm. of what is a really really large market. So that's the second part of the answer. The third part of the answer is that. Yes. And then even within those customers that you do focus on, they, they are going to hit these different scheduling situations and there needs to be a facility in the product for them to express the, you know, the, mm. the relative priority. And, and I think the fault here that you can make is that the product cannot magically necessarily figure out the priority of something. And you, you do need to educate a user how to effectively use the product in a way that is socially nuanced. Mm -hmm. It needs to have that facility, but you you do need to sort of tell someone like, hey, if, if this other person's more important, maybe in the message to Clara, you say, hey, you know, happy to defer to you. How, you know, you use mm -hmm. language like that to indicate to Clara the, the priority or the accommodation. So I'm curious whether this is something that you're thinking about uh, when you build this kind of product. Like, it feels like the right way to do it. If it was a human, they would know, 
okay, I have a meeting. This is an important client. I shouldn't, you know, I should defer to them or, you know, something like that. So are you building this map of like an, a system of record of like settings and preferences and, and, and seniority between pairs of people based on like their email address? Is that, is that like in the back backing of this data product? Yeah, no, I mean, every you can think about every meeting or attempted meeting that Clara tries to set up um, as kind of a an edge between two nodes, and you can store some kind of strength on that based off, for instance, the priority. Um, and that that is something that we do kind of implicitly capture. I guess I'm interested in like how deep, like I think there's a shallow solution or a shallow AI product that right. kind of sort of works. And then I guess the deeper question is like there's, you know, if we're thinking about data products or AI products, some people, I guess the school of thought would be AI is just sprinkled on and you're really building like, you know, yet another, you know, HR system and then sprinkle some AI on it. And then another way of thinking about it is you're going to really go deep and maybe you're actually building the next LinkedIn, right? Which is like got this deep understanding of the relationships of people or you're or like Uber is solving the transportation problem and you're solving in all forms the scheduling problem. So like, I guess that's more my question is like, what what is the deep back? What is the graph in the back end that you think comes out of this whole problem? So I'll, I'll answer in two parts, at, like <laughs> structuring my answers. Um, the first part is just to address, I think, what you said at the beginning, which was about, you know, a human would be able to, for instance, kind of know the priority and kind of have a general sense of like, oh, this person's important, this person's less important. And and I think actually that that is actually in some ways it's a crutch if you think about it. Like you're sort of relying on a person to hopefully have a sense of what's important to you. And how much one human can remember and know about people mm -hmm. is is kind of there's a there's a built-in limitation there. Like if you think about a, a personal chauffeur before Uber, you know, they sort of have a sense of where someone is and where they live and they know how to kind of but, but it doesn't scale up in kind of the same way and really make it accessible. So I think that's one one big part, which is that actually, you know, explicitly being able to express what it is you want from a given interaction or meeting is in some sense actually a feature, not a not a not a bug. Um, so in the comparison to to a human. And then I think on the on the kind of bigger question you asked about what do we kind of see ourselves as building and what is kind of the deep uh, you know, the deep, interesting um, part, what, how I kind of th think about what it is that we do and how we think about what we do is that there, there's there's two parts of it. One is that, you know, kind of from the onset, we come into someone's life and we make coordination for them a lot simpler um, mm -hmm. and for everybody involved in in the conversation. I think that's a that's a key part of like what, what we track internally as KPIs for our product. You know, what, are we making this simpler for this interaction of connecting synchronous planning to connect synchronously, are we making that process easier for everyone? And then simultaneously, if you take on that work for someone, you're also, you know, you're fundamentally impacting their, um, how they're spending their time, right? And and also their relationships, right? So you're maybe increasing the number of people they connect with, you're making it easier for them to connect with people. And I think, so we think about those three things, which is one, how do you make coordination fundamentally simpler for everyone involved? And then two, you're really helping someone manage their time and relationships. And kind of, as you said, through each interaction, we learn a lot about your relationships. We learn about where they are, their phone numbers, their, um, you know, kind of a self-updating even CRM, if you will. Clara's already doing all the work to have high quality data on each contact in your in your phone book. Um, mm -hmm. And 
and all of that data is implicitly tracked and and you know we haven't in a big way kind of surface those things back in our product but it's definitely you know that's definitely along the lines of what we're thinking as we as we kind of uh move forward so this is a a question that's relevant to anyone building a bot and something that a lot of bot builders put a lot of thought into um how do you convey to users the sense that clara is a bot and in what ways do you see your users acknowledging that the product is a bot i mean do they write to other people like I'm CCing my assistant bot, or do they not acknowledge that Claire is a bot? So we see we see a number of things in, in terms of actual user interaction. We see people white label Clara and make you know create an employee at their company and create LinkedIn's and sort of create this whole false identity, you know, this sort uh-huh, of identity uh-huh. for the product. Um, and and then we also see people who um, sort of explicitly refer to you know, hey whatever the name of their Clara is, you know, CCing X, uh, my AI bot who can get this on the, on the calendar. And mm. I, I think that, so kind of internally, we've been really, really, really focused on making the best possible, highest quality um, Clara that we can. And, and one of the things we're starting to spend a lot more time on is this actual perception question. Um, and, I, and I think you have to, you have to do that you have to do this in this order because fundamentally it has to be good for people to get any kind of positive perception of it. And then how you guide the perception of, you know, is it a, is it a bot? Is it something that makes my life simpler? Is it a tool? Is it, you know, is this the optimal interface for getting something scheduled? I think mm-hmm. that that becomes kind of a key product marketing question, but you only get to answer that question if the product is good. If the product is not good, then it becomes, oh, this is just an annoying thing and I don't want to talk to it. And when I get an email from it, like, go away, right? And I right. think we've mostly been existentially focused on the first one, that first part. And, and now we have the opportunity. I think we've done a, a really good job and are kind of getting to the point where we can answer that second question, which is how do we want to guide perception? And I think it is a, a guiding thing. I think right. you, you can't just let people, um, you can listen to what people say and what they think, but I think the guidance is really important. Yeah, it's it's interesting and it's relevant to whether uh, to, to the question of whether, you know, users will feel comfortable interjecting a bot into those delicate social situations that you and Pete have been talking about. I mean, th- there are there are certain situations that I wouldn't uh, interject a trusted personal assistant, you know, in, into if it's a conversation with a family member or or a close friend or if in certain power dynamics, right, if if I'm uh, emailing with the CEO of Apple, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to handle my calendar myself. But the, the gap between what you would send, a, you know, a human into and what you would send a bot into narrows considerably once you start to think of the bot as a human. I have a related question. So when you talk about the comfort level of dropping the bot into the conversation, so in email, my, my instinct and my experience is that, you know, if I'm aware of the service Clara or I signed up and I'm the next time I'm encountering a scheduling situation, naturally, I may try to use it. Right. Or I may look for a situation to use it. And then it has that nice viral effect of somebody else is using it and you're on the other side of the transaction. But a lot, a lot of bots right now, obviously, are on messenger platforms more so than um, email, um, or at least that's caught popular attention. Um, and there, it feels like they're still trying to find their footing. And like in Slack or, you know, me- mes- Messenger now has group bots, but um, up until now, they've been very one-to-one, where you, it's a human interacting with a bot one-on-one. Do you think email is a more viable platform um, for, for these AI bots? You know, it's... <laughs> it's uh... 
It's a good question. Um, my only real personal experience with uh, bought products was when I tried the, um, I think Facebook launched some kind of weather bot when they launched the the bot SDK. The poncho, um, and I, was, I think, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, 98% of the time I want to query weather, it's really just based off my context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so, so, so I, I think, I think that's just an example of, you know, language, natural language, uh, is powerful for certain situations. And I, 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 I don't think you get to get rid of the process of designing a product. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think you have to start from customer needs and, and go from customer needs to, is this the right solution to, you know, is this the right technology and you know the right platform, et cetera. And I, I think there's always a excitement around a new platform and a new concept. And I, I, I certainly believe in the power of the concept of a, of a bot, of a, you know, a language interface of, um, you know, but I think th- there is going to be a big funnel and kind of winnowing mm-hmm. of the, the, the people who've really done a good job designing products. Um, and I think there are a lot of interesting products to be built on a lot of, you know, a lot of different messaging. Um, me- messaging, I think is actually, uh, that's actually something I've, I've thought a lot about. People talk about, you know, email and Slack and, you know, Facebook Messenger. And they talk about, you know, in China, they do business using messaging apps frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you try to do any kind of scaled amount of communication, right, if you try to talk to a lot of people, you're going to end up needing a lot of the same tools um, in terms of managing the communication. You know, what do I still need to respond to? What haven't I read yet? What am I saving for later? What, you know, and, and, and if you build up all those tools and you put it in a visual interface, it's going to end up looking like <laughs> some something not too different from your email client. And even if you look at Slack's interface over time, it's kind of converging on the starred, unstarred, here are the new threads, mm-hmm. here's mm-hmm. the, you know, and I, I don't think the messaging protocol, right, is... You know, it's it's the things that are interesting about it. Yeah, there's extra metadata. There's different stuff you can put in it. There's some implicit context, like who's CC'd on it, who's in the group channel. But I think one of the more interesting things about messaging is like, who do you give your unique ID to, right? So mm-hmm. an email, you give it out to a lot of people. So you get a scaled amount of communication there. And so you have certain tools. Your, te- your phone number, you don't give out to too many people. So you, you're having more intimate conversations with a smaller number of people. So you can have a simpler interface and it's more about expression and you know, having fun and kind of your emotions. And, and again, these are, it's like highly, highly about the kind of social, cultural, you know, uh, mm-hmm. edges of these protocols, as opposed to the fact that it's SMS or the fact that it's Slack or the fact that it's yeah. email. One other point that you're hitting on there, you're, when you talk about the platforms, you talk about these IDs that they have, right? And so LinkedIn is an obvious example, but Facebook, uh, your Facebook, uh, your Twitter handle, your email, your phone number, these are these things that are very persistent and follow you around. Um, and similarly, for when you think about Clara, there's like the CRMs or the system of the record or the Outlook, um, you know, whoever has the contact database. Um, and there was a post by Jerry Chen at Greylock earlier this week um, that was talking about, uh, it was essentially saying like AI is the new moat or something, which is that like you had systems of record and now you have systems of intelligence and the next battleground for Microsoft and Google and startups um, will be not just who has the data, but who can do the most with the data. So do you you think, is is that really part of your thesis with what you're doing at Clara? Yeah, I, I I totally, I, I totally agree. 
I think the reason it's challenging to figure out how do you do something with the data, which is really like providing a service, right? I think people call it artificial intelligence, but like if you're putting intelligence on something, you're doing something for someone as opposed to just storing it mm -hmm. or managing it. And, and consumers and, and businesses think about that as a service of some mm -hmm. kind. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the challenging thing with making something intelligent is that you, you have to teach it. Right, you have you. It has to learn from something. It 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 doesn't just uh, spawn from nothing. And I mm -hmm. think the companies that are able to figure out how to create some loop where um, a person took an action and you can learn from that action. And, and I think this most SaaS solutions today are not. They're designed around here's an interface. Come hire a bunch of humans, salespeople, recruiters, recruiting coordinators, SDRs, BDRs, whatever it is, what have you, to have them come do their work here um, and we'll organize it for them. But you know, fundamentally, they're doing data entry and managing it. And I, I think designing systems from day one to implicitly learn from the intelligence that is already there is kind of the, the tricky nut to crack for a lot of these systems. And, and, and it's, what, it's what gets you intelligence, right? It's the reason that you know, it's the reason that you can't just funnel, you know, a billion email conversations into you, <laughs> TensorFlow. so many yeah. different things. <laughs> right. And, and I think, uh, the, the raw data isn't intelligent. The intelligence is well-organized data, like well-organized data is intelligence. Like that's all, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and I think you, you have to get it there and you, ideally you make it part of the the flow of someone doing some piece of work. I think that's the ideal. Yeah, it's the it's the translation between the chaos of the world and the organization of like, you know, specification and and precision. Right. If I just said something random to everything you said, you wouldn't think I was very intelligent. You would be like a deep learning <laughs> bot right now though, if you did that. Right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, we could make a Twitter account out of you in that case. Yeah. Cool. So Michael, um all, all this talk of building a super intelligence makes me want to help train this super intelligence. So uh, if, <laughs> if people want to learn more about the product and, and try it out and learn more about what you're doing, where, where do we go and how do we do it? Yeah, uh, for sure. You can, you can go straight to our website. It's clarilabs.com. We have a two-week free trial. Anyone can, can try it as long as you use Google Apps right now. Um, and, and I think in terms of, uh, you know, you asked a little bit about like where is it where is it going and kind of what's what's new and upcoming. Um, you know, historically we've been really focused, as I mentioned before, just on making Clara really really great at the core thing that Clara does, which is schedule meetings for people. You know, and around that we've been really focused on just the individual. Who are you? What do we need to know about you? Um, where do you go? How do you how do you do calls? How do you you know when do you like meetings? All this sort of information about you. And the next step is really understanding more about the environment that you're in, right? So the office, the workspace, your team. Um, you know, do you use conference rooms? Which ones? And if you schedule a you know an onsite with someone, what are the rules around you know who has to do what in what order? And you know again, you know really more complex sort of business situation, but but mm -hmm. making Clara kind of take on all the coordination there, make it super simple, have Clara understand your business. And therefore, we're also launching kind of a Clara for Business edition um, kind of coming this summer and sort of really getting deeper on the environment and the business uh, and understanding the complexities there so Clara can can be even more effective. Michael Achillian, 
co-founder and CTO of Clara. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it um, and hope to talk again. Here on the Bots Podcast, we talk about a lot of different cutting-edge technologies, but we especially love artificial intelligence. If you're interested in learning more about AI, you'll want to check out the O'Reilly AI Conference. At the O'Reilly AI Conference, we talk about not only cutting-edge new techniques, we also talk about real practical advice for building real AI-driven products. The O'Reilly AI Conference is coming up twice this year, once in New York, June 26 to 29, and once in San Francisco, September 17 to 20. To see the schedule and register for the O'Reilly AI Conference, visit O'ReillyAICon.com. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the O'Reilly Bots podcast, be sure to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever it is that you enjoy listening to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us. I'm John Bruno.